0: Hello and welcome to the SIPS podcast. My name is Greta Abrahamson. I'm the Director of the Centre for International Policy Studies and I'm also your host for this edition of the podcast, which is focused on a new policy report the SIPS is publishing. The report is called Competitive Expertise and Future Diplomacy, and it explores the challenges faced by foreign ministries and diplomats in the face of a rapidly changing international agenda. In particular, the report asks what this changing environment means for Canada and how Canadian diplomatic practices should be reformed and revamped to remain competitive and credible. The report is written by Ulrich Shannon, who is the SIPS Research Associate. He's also a career diplomat in the Canadian Foreign Service, and he was Canada's ambassador to Iraq from 2019 to 2021. He has also served in Egypt, the Palestinian territories, Pakistan, and Turkey. To discuss the report, Ulrich and I are joined by Kerry Bopp, who also has a long and distinguished diplomatic career. She was Canada's ambassador to NATO, and she has held numerous senior executive positions at Global Affairs Canada. Ulrich and Kerry, welcome to you both. It's a pleasure to have you here. Ulrich, let's start with you. Perhaps you could kick us off by saying a little bit about what motivated you to write this report in the first place.
1: Thank you very much, Rita. There were really two reasons that impelled me to focus on this topic during a period when I was on leave from the foreign ministry and, and affiliated with SIPs. One is a personal experience. So I'm, as, as you explained in, in the opening, someone who spent the bulk of my career in the Middle East and in the Arab world. I, I I'm fluent in Arabic. I speak decent Turkish. And so I, I'm considered one of the Middle East specialists, so to speak, within within the Canadian foreign ministry. And yet, in, in my experience, I've, I've always encountered a bit of a reticence within the culture of, of foreign affairs to encourage this kind of specialization. For years, I've gotten the advice that, well, you don't want to be pigeonholed as a Middle East person. You want to show that you're, you're broad as well as deep if, if you want to get ahead. And I've always found this curious, and, and certainly in my dealings with diplomats from other countries, I've sensed that other countries take a different approach approach, other foreign ministries tend to encourage that kind of specialization and and they feel that they need a cadre of specialists in different regions of the world. And so I wanted to use this period when I was away from the department to figure out if this instinct was correct and and whether there was an empirical basis for concluding that other foreign ministries approach the the issue of specialization differently than than we do in Canada. The second reason that in many of the countries that I studied, there's been a raft of reports published in the last two decades talking about the future of diplomacy and, and whether foreign ministries have the right skills to to be successful. It's certainly the case in the United States, where there's, you know, a think tank report every six months, it seems like. In the UK and Australia, there have been numerous parliamentary inquiries into the effectiveness of their their foreign ministries. In Canada, there's been nothing similar. The last study was conducted in 1981. That was the McDougall Commission. And it was really only interested in in issues of pay and benefits for Canada's diplomats. So you could say that there's really never been a study of of the the issue of the talent that Canada's foreign service is going to need in the future. So I thought I would address that gap. Now, ironically, in in the months after I began my research, the Senate in February announced a year-long study into whether Canada's foreign services fit for purpose. And then in May, Minister Jolie launched launched a similar initiative called the Future of Diplomacy. So, I mean, I I feel the timing has been fortuitous, but really those are the two things that prompted me to, to want to take a look at these issues.
0: Excellent. Thank you. It means that the report is going to hit a a very opportune moment. Kerry, I wonder about you, given your long expertise, what Ulrich describes. Is this something you recognize from your own practice and experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. In addition to a devaluing of specialized knowledge, I find over the past, about the past decade or more, actually, there's also been a devaluing of diplomacy on the whole creeping sense that diplomacy that anyone can do it that you can drop someone in and they can immediately do the diplomatic work and then drop out again. Not anyone can do diplomacy. Many, many people can do diplomacy if you have the right aptitude, the right skills, the curiosity, but you have to learn it. And you learn it by basic the basic job of the diplomat is translating Canada to the country you're in or to the international organization you're in and translating that back to Canadian decision makers. And you do that by developing a network and keeping that open spirit able to understand other countries' perspectives, right? And that takes a while to develop those networks and those instincts. So it is a, it, it is a profession. So it's almost like two layers of challenges right now revaluing some of the specialized skills. We're in a different world right now, a world where knowledge and contacts matter a lot more. And we're also in a world where diplomacy isn't the same as having managerial skills. Managerial skills, managing top to bottom, it's very, very different from that horizontal world of diplomacy where you have to build networks get to know people, get to know issues and have an agility and capacity to work at speed and be innovative. It's different, really different. I've worked in domestic departments and huge culture difference. And I unfortunately think the global affairs has been trending towards more of a domestic department approach, personality and culture. And I think that's a real mistake. because We used to be really good diplomatic service. And there are really good people there still, but I fear that we have let this fade away almost unconsciously.
0: I'm sure we'll come back to the topic of managerialism, but just a little bit More specifically, first, Ulrich, in in the report, you describe the Canadian Diplomatic Service as almost having an an exceedingly deep commitment to a generalist approach and almost an aversion to excessive specialization. Can you just explain a little bit what you mean by that and, and what the main shortcomings of this approach is?
1: Certainly. I I think, first of all, it's important to understand that global affairs does have pockets of genuine expertise throughout the department. And we have tremendous international legal experts. We have experts in multilateralism, humanitarian assistance, trade policy. I mean, we went toe-to-toe with the Americans to renegotiate NAFTA and did quite well because we had, you know, some of the best trade policy people in the world. But what I notice is that um, these are largely non-rotational people. These are people uh, who are not rotational diplomats. And so, in a sense, their, their expertise is not forward deployed. It's not out there are serving in our in our network of, of missions abroad and so really that's the that's the problem that i'm trying to attack in 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 my report. I think the reasons, I dwell quite a bit on the history of the department and the tradition and ethos of the department going back to the 1920s even. So I think traditionally, the assumption was that foreign affairs, external affairs, as it was called at the time, was too small. And indeed, until the end of World War II, we really were a tiny, tiny diplomatic service. And so I think legitimately the conclusion was we have to be generalists because we're too small. We can't have people over special. But that ethos really didn't change through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. As the department grew and as our international footprint expanded. So I think part of it is is sort of this burden of, of history and kind of the word of mouth, you know, wisdom that gets, you know, passed down through generations of managers in in our department. And, and you've already alluded as well to the the issue of managerialism, this kind of cultural shift that's taken place in the last several decades, where, you know, there's this sense that, as, as Kerry said, you know, expertise is almost cast as something that is in tension with being a leader within the Canadian public service. And again, that's something that I try to address in in our report. Now, it this hasn't prevented people from becoming regional experts or or thematic experts. And, and again, I'm sort of an example of that to the extent that I have a region that I focused on. But it tends to be done in a very ad hoc fashion. It, it's often due to the stubbornness of the person. Or the belief that, you know, we, we simply think it's important that, you know, the department have people that it can draw on who are China specialists or Latin America or multilateral or or you name it. But it's, you know, I think the, the aversion is due to a number of these kind of deep organizational cultural factors.
0: Harry, you brought up this idea of, of managerialism and the downgrading of diplomatic skills as well. In your view, what's the reason for this development?
2: Well, I think part of it is a result of a trend that has actually occurred across the entire public service. And it started in around the 90s, actually prior to that, where the idea was that knowledge or subject matter expertise at the very senior levels wasn't sufficient. They wanted generalists who would do a better job of managing the public purse and, and, you know, there was a point to be made. But behind that was the idea that perhaps the conversation between deputy ministers and the political level would unfold a little more easily if you had DMs who were focusing more on the management and less on protect the departments and the policies that they'd shepherded for decades So we went from an era where deputy ministers would be in place for decades, literally, to now an average turnover rate, I think it's down as low as two or three years. So deputies are parachuted in. They know general management, but they don't necessarily know the policies, the history of the policies. They don't know the stakeholder groups of their specific departments, and they don't know the people. And there's a downside to that. And it's a loss, not just of knowledge, but I also think it's damaging to our Westminster one of the principles of Westminster where you give honest advice to the political level. So that's a- another issue across the public service, but it's shown up at foreign affairs as well. And the space for risk taking and the space for honest advice has been closing and I'm not the only one to say this. There was Institute on Governance did a good report a few months ago. Donald Savoy said it and Ulrich has it in his report. So that's one of the reasons part of a larger trend. And that's showing up I said, you, you can learn diplomacy, but we haven't had, we, Global Affairs hasn't had a deputy minister who has practiced diplomacy in place as secretary since 2003. That's a long time. There have been some really good people, really experienced deputies since then. But those people don't bring the networks, the international networks, the contacts, the history and the knowledge of the diplomatic core. So I'm not arguing for a return to a closed guild. There are all sorts of really good people across the federal government who do diplomacy. But it's almost like we're in a world where you've got each department running its own foreign policy with no connecting glue across the departments. And that's not effective or efficient way of doing your foreign policy.
0: So the, the report is is not only focused on Canada; it's also looking at how other countries are dealing with these changes in, in how diplomats and foreign services operate. So, the report is looking at the U.S., the U.K., Australia, France, and also then China and Russia. and And I wonder, Albrecht, what highlight would you pull out in terms of what? or how these other countries are dealing and adapting and striking the balance between expertise and generalists.
1: So I think that the thing that struck me most from the research was that, you know, although we, we often beat ourselves up, you know, in, in foreign affairs, these issues that we're dealing with are universal. Other foreign industries are struggling with them as well. So we, we should give ourselves, you know, a bit of a, a break in, in that sense. I think the, you know, the, the countries that I describe as our, you know, adversaries currently, you know, and, and competitors, Russia and China, have a very different tradition. I mean, for them, hyper-specialization is, is the route that they've chosen. And so their diplomats tend to be extremely capable linguists and people who who spent the bulk of their career, often in in one country, over the course of multiple assignments. Now, as I say in the report, that, that doesn't necessarily translate, though, into a more effective style of diplomacy, but that's that's due to factors, you know, rigidities within those systems, and, and that's just the nature of authoritarian governments. If we're talking about the democracies that I talk about in the paper, what I would say is, although we're all wrestling with many of the same issues, where Canada is lagging a little bit, and we're, we're a bit of an outlier, is I think we're late to the game of of realizing that while all of us will... will I think always, you know, deliver diplomacy through a core of generalists. We do need Pockets of specialization and expertise among our rotational personnel. I think um, the other democracies that I compare us to in the report are further along that track. They've developed different models of talent management. The UK calls it career anchors. In the US, they call it major and a minor. But it's the idea that you're supposed to commit to having a region or a theme or a combination of regions and themes that you're going to return to over the course of your career so that you can accumulate knowledge and put it back into the organization. That's that's something that I think we're 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 lagging on a little bit in Canada through, through you know, no fault of, of anyone in particular. But I, I think there are just some internal issues that, that we're still wrestling with within global affairs that, that mean that we're a little bit behind the curve.
0: Carrie, what's your take
2: on this? We are behind the curve and I'd say we need to do two things. First, I think the reviews that have been launched are timely they're going to be focusing or they are focusing on what our foreign policy practitioners should be like without that backdrop of what our foreign policy is. And it's very difficult to define what the foreign service that we need now and in the future is without understanding what our foreign policy priorities are, including some forward thinking about, you know, what is Canada on the world stage? So I would say, like the UK, as an example do an integrated whole of Canada review of our international posture. Our short-term interests, our longer-term interests, and our personality on the international stage. And then from that roll back, what are the skills we need? I think they'll find quickly that diplomacy is one of those skills that you need to build, including some specialized areas. Ulrich mentioned trade policy, linguistic skills, they're having a heck of a time in global affairs right now because of their lack of China expertise, because of their lack of Russia expertise. Those people weren't kept around and it was pretty foreseeable that those skills would have been needed, right? So treat knowledge as not just knowledge, but that diplomatic, including diplomatic knowledge, the knowledge of how to do diplomacy as an asset for the department, build that knowledge with a career plan so that that knowledge is used throughout someone's career, rather than it being stubborn people who just keep insisting on sticking to the same subject matter, that there's an actual plan. And then consider diplomacy as part of performance reviews, not just knowledge, but as I said, that expertise. So there's a, a fair bit of work that's needed departments also dealing with this huge gap in hiring and so what they've got in those jobs at the more junior level where you actually learn the craft of diplomacy they have Way too many casuals, far too many people who are terms who won't be sticking around, and you don't have the skill set or the background necessarily to deliver, and then those assets are lost to the department. The other thing I've seen at the middle rank is that people, it's very good to go out to other departments, but then they're lost and they don't come back. Why? Because the senior cadre doesn't know who has those skills out, out there. So instead of building across government departments the capacity, to do international work in a way that's strategic with some background and knowledge it's lost it's frayed it's diluted and i think that's a missed opportunity
0: when i'm listening to to the two of you i'm wondering if if what you are envisioning is a is a massive expansion of the canadian foreign service do we need more people or do we just need a different set of people a different skills among those people
2: yeah they need more people they need need more people who are going to be doing this for the long haul rather than filling stop gaps with people that they then don't keep around but I I think we also have to re-envision the foreign service as I said there are a lot of there's a lot of international work done across other departments ostensibly domestic and people learn the skills of diplomacy there but then they're They're running their own foreign policies, as I said, and they don't understand the impact of what they're doing against some of Canada's other interests. Why? Because they've just been negotiating environment or they've just been negotiating egg, or fisheries standards. So I would like to see some thought given to a structured way of including those people, those skill sets in our broader foreign service, either structurally inside the foreign service, but at least more links across the people who do international so you have a more cohesive, coherent approach to foreign policy and to the people who deliver it, who develop those international skill sets. So not Fortress Pearson, but something that looks quite different, but validates and values and builds that expertise.
1: I would just add one comment to what Carrie what said. So I've been I've been talking about my belief in the value of expertise, you know, within the department for years now. And and really, you know, in senior management, no one really disagrees with that. But what I hear a lot is it's just not a priority or it's not urgent because we're always dealing with other human resources. Priorities. Obviously, right now we're dealing with post-COVID return to work. We have a very assertive and aggressive diversity agenda. That's that's equally important. You know, the merger of CEDA into foreign in in 2013, you know, consumed years of effort to integrate two different workforces. So there's it seems like there's always something that is you know more important. And 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 fair enough. But what it means is between that and the understaffing of FS positions, foreign service positions that Kerry was alluding to, the reaction I often get is, well, what you're talking about is, is sort of an ideal world scenario and maybe we'll get to that eventually where we're able to professionalize and to develop careers you know and, and do more assertive hr planning but right now we're just trying to you know fill the gaps and and, and try to recruit people to fill our, our fs you know vacancies
0: Ulrich, you have reviewed the, the policies of all these other countries which kind of approach stood out to you as being most effective in adapting you mean You talk about the US, the UK, France, and so on. Is there any particular model or way of adapting that you would like to highlight?
1: I mean, I think all of the foreign ministries I looked at, including Canada's, have strengths and and, and weaknesses, and no one has figured out the ideal model yet. But I think what struck me in certainly the American model and and the British model, again, is the sense that, you know, career planning matters and and that, you know, the skills that you acquire in part belong to the company. And the company has an equity stake in seeing your knowledge recycled back into the organization in in future assignments. So, as I said, the, the British system has this career anchors model where you're expected to identify regions and themes that are going to be largely the focus of your career and and you will get you know preferential consideration for assignments in those areas more advanced training etc what the U.S. does that is very good, I think, is they have a written doctrine called the core precepts, where they lay out what the organization requires in terms of knowledge and expertise. That's something global affairs doesn't have. And I would be delighted, I think, if we came out of this process of, of studies by the Senate and, and by Minister Jolie's initiative with a more explicit sense of, of the areas where you know, Canada feels that we need to develop our subject matter for knowledge and skills and diplomatic skills, as, as Kerry has, has stated, and that we will feed that back into in more individualized career planning. I think it would be a very healthy direction to take.
0: There is so much more to talk about, given the, the length and the breadth of your report, already. but we have come to the end of our time. I will just encourage everyone to go to our website and read the report. It can be found on the SIPS website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please come back and listen to us again. You can also follow us on Twitter. But for now, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.